The book of Ruth, the third chapter. Big blessings come in small packages. That's how I feel about Ruth. 85 verses. Short book, packed full of lessons. Lessons on failure, lessons on restoration, lessons on providence, and how God weaves the ordinary into his extraordinary plan. Small package, great blessing. We've been through two chapters, and already we've seen some of those blessings, great, great applicational lessons. The book of Ruth covers about 11 or 12 years as far as its, its uh, time span. Ten years were spent in Moab, chapter 1 tells us. They were there ten years. That's their years of wandering and disobedience. In the ensuing one or two years, God takes all of those ten years and changes it completely. Everything they messed up, everything it took them ten years to mess up, God could restore in a year. There's a great principle in the book of Joel that God will restore the years that the canker worm has destroyed. God's in the business of restoration. That's a good thing, isn't it? Because we just are really good at messing up our lives. And God is really good at unscrambling them. It was only once that I tried this, and no doubt it will be the last time, but my father, before he passed away, gave me an old car. It was a 67, but even it was older than that, just in terms of how it ran. It didn't run. And so he gave it to me, and I, I liked it because I actually learned to drive in that car. And so I took it on as a restoration project. And, you know, at first I looked at that and said, this thing's hopeless. Then as I got into it, I actually started enjoying it. I learned about what parts go to that car and how they were made that year. And it was fun to research and look through the country and even the world to find out where I could find the part that I needed and, and get it for a great price and clean it up and put it on. It took me a while, but I restored this car and drove it around. Now, granted, it did break down on me frequently. I used it for a couple of years. It, just, it, it would break down at strange times, like on the way to a wedding or a funeral or to church, and so it, it provided some real interesting opportunities in trusting God. But, you know, I began to think that that's what God does all the time. He's in the business of restoration. He doesn't go to the new people lot and say, you know, I'm just going to make new people that are perfect because, you know, this batch on earth, they're so long gone, and, and I don't want the restoration, I don't want the project. No, God purposely looks for the project that needs restoration, that's dinged up, that's dented, that doesn't run, and says, ah, I, I know exactly what I can do with that thing. I know how I can fix the, the dent and give it a new paint job and even a, a better engine. Soup it up a little bit. It'll be better than new. We mess our lives up. God restores them. So 10 years were spent in Moab. Then we get in chapter 2, a day in Bethlehem, in the fields of Boaz. In chapter 3, we have one night. 
on the threshing floor of the field of Boaz. And then the last chapter is probably about a year or so in Bethlehem. That's the scope of this book. It is a a romantic book we have already seen. Chapter 2 is a romantic scene. Man meets young girl, Moabitess. They catch glances. She works in his field. You know, they meet on the job. It might even have been love at first sight, so to speak. And God is behind the scenes weaving their lives together. Now, we come to chapter 3, and we're going to cover this chapter tonight, all 18 verses. And when I come to chapter 3, I found myself singing a song today. Matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. Find me a find, catch me a catch. Remember the song? Matchmaker, 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 look through your book and make me a perfect match. Because that's exactly what Naomi is in the position of in chapter 3. She becomes the Jewish matchmaker. And she sees Boaz taking a liking to Ruth, and she thinks, Oh, Ruth, I've got the perfect plan for you. (laughs) And she comes up with this sanctified scheme, so to speak, of setting up her daughter-in-law to get into a relationship with someone who was lawfully able to do that, a goel, the Hebrew word is, the goel, the kinsman redeemer, the one who could redeem the land for the family, for the tribe, as well as Mary, the daughter-in-law, the Moabitess named Ruth. Now chapter 3 is where Ruth pops the question. Sounds weird, doesn't it? But Ruth does the question popping here. Not Boaz. You're not going to see Boaz pull out a ring and say, Young sweetheart, like you to marry me. She does the asking. And it's going to sound strange to us, but that was according to the law of Moses. It was according to the biblical precept. And uh, we're going to find out a little bit more about that as we get into it tonight. Um, So Naomi is planning. She's plotting. She's scheming. But above all, and we've learned this so far, so let's apply what we've learned to this chapter. God is behind the scenes orchestrating it all. It's called providence. He's weaving his will in the midst of her strategizing. He's using the human elements, the human decisions, and he's weaving his will through it. Providentially, God is working. So we would say then, really, this is a match made in heaven. And we know that by the end of the book, because of the genealogy of David and the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and also the typology of Boaz being a redeemer, a type of Christ. And we're going to look uh, more readily into that in chapter 4. An outline of the chapter, just to kind of get the bearings. And I think there's lessons even in the outline as I read through it today. First portion is Naomi planning. Naomi planning. She plots, she thinks, she figures out what Ruth needs to do to hook this guy. Second, we have Ruth cooperating, doing everything mom-in-law says to do. Third, we have Boaz responding. And fourth, we have everyone waiting. Let's begin in verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter... Shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? Now Boaz, whose young woman you were with, is he not our relative? In fact, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. 
Therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself and put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies and you shall go in, uncover his feet. Bear with me. I know it sounds really weird because <laughs> you're thinking, really? Do I have to do that? And lie down and he will tell you what you should do. And you think, yeah, he's going to say, get out of here, leave my feet alone. But he won't do that, and we'll try to fill in the gaps as to why. Naomi is the matchmaker. She's concerned about her daughter-in-law, because her daughter-in-law, Ruth, was the one who married her son, her son who had died in Moab. They both came bereft of their husbands in total poverty back to the land where there once was a famine and now God is blessing, the land of Bethlehem. That required Ruth to work, and so she'd been gleaning out in the field. She'd been working for Boaz. It was his property. Because she was poor, because she was a widow, the law of Moses allowed somebody to glean free of charge and to bring some of what they gleaned home to provide for the poor. She had done that. But she's more concerned that her life in the future is taken care of. She's old. She lost her husband, but she wants this young girl to have a future. Wants her to get her husband. And so she's arranging things. Now, in those days, you know that marriages were arranged by parents. And that does not sound attractive to us today. Especially when you are in your early 20s, or in those days, a teenager, imagine thinking mom and dad are going to make the choice of who I'm going to marry. Like, they don't know anything as it is, let alone who I should marry. That's the thought of a teenager. But in those days, marriages were arranged, arranged by the parents. And today, we like to choose our own mates, but I don't think we have any better luck as I look around in terms of choice than parents do. In fact, in India today, uh, marriages are still arranged in Christian communities. And I, that shocked me. That took me back when I was there for the first time several years ago. And, and I asked that question, how, how do people date here? And I was told, they don't. We do the dating for them. <laughs> we arrange the marriages. And then they have a period of courtship, and then they get married. And I said, boy, uh, you know, so they, they don't know each other till after they get married. That's right. But then I thought, you know, we don't either, really. We think we do, but once you marry a person, you go, oh, well, okay. It's a little bit different than I thought. So the result is basically the same. And by the way, in that country, when I was going through this, I said, well, that's kind of weird. You know, I'm, I'm speaking very American to them. I'm going to them with my lens of, of what it ought to be. How, how does that work? And my friend put his arm around me and said, you know, before you knock it, you should understand that in our country, we don't have the kind of divorce rate you have. Because we learn that marriage is a commitment for life and that we will learn to love that other person however incompatible. That's how they enter the relationship. They have that understanding prior to it. So put that mindset on just for a moment and go back in time here where Naomi is putting this whole thing together. And by the way, I guess it depends on who's arranging your marriage. You know, we say, well, I don't believe in arranged marriages. Let me tell you, I do. God arranged my marriage, I believe. 
And I love that kind of arrangement. So it all depends on who's doing the arranging. If I'm doing the arranging, you're doing the arranging, you ought to be worried. If you're letting the Lord arrange things for you, you can rest. And it seems that Ruth sort of has that idea of the providence of God in the midst of all of this and trusts implicitly, not in her mother, keep in mind, but her mother-in-law. That's saying a lot. Would you let your mother-in-law dictate your future? Well, she does. What we have here is a combination, and I remind you of it once again, a combination of human intelligence, that's Naomi's plotting here, and divine guidance. God using human plotting, planning, looking ahead, figuring out what needs to be done. I meet some Christians that are kind of spooky to me. They're so mystical about the will of God, and, and, and they're so afraid of any kind of strategy. They don't like the word strategizing, planning. Don't plan. You've got to just feel as if it's the will of God. Some mystical thing. All the planets are going to align for me, and then I'll know it's the will of God. I think God blesses the intelligent use of your mental faculties. You pray for wisdom, and then you move. If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives liberally. Then let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. And so many times I'll say, God, I don't know what to do. Would you give me your wisdom? And then I trust that God has given me his wisdom. I make the choice as if it's the will of God. So that's simple. So we see providence in this. God works supernaturally, naturally. Providence doesn't eliminate human activity. So there's Naomi. Hmm, I know that guy. He's probably interested in you. I've got the plan. Somebody said there's three kinds of people. Those who make things happen, those who watch things happen, and those who have no idea what's happening. <laughs> I know a lot of Christians like that. Third one. Naomi was the first. She was one to make things happen, at the same time letting God make it happen. And, and really that's the key. Make plans for the future. Don't think it's unspiritual, but, but, be flexible. Blessed are the flexible. They shall not be broken. You won't find that in Scripture, but there is a principle there in the Scripture. Be flexible. That's what James said. He said, instead of saying, we shall do this or that, go into a city, buy and sell and get gain, you should say, if the Lord will, we will go into the city and do that. So you make plans, you say, the Lord wills. And then if the Lord doesn't will, you go, well, okay, God, what do you got? What are, you, what are your plans? What am I not seeing? That's a good way to live. I'll tell you what, it'll save a lot of ulcers. You'll live a lot longer and happier. Look at verse 1, my daughter. Shall I not seek, and notice the word, security for you, that it may be well with you? The Hebrew word manoach, security, manoach. It means a haven, a resting spot, a place to kick back and feel secure. It, it, it has in the word the connotation of love and acceptance, mutual love and acceptance. Security is a beautiful word. And by the way, I think it's a great description of a marriage, a haven, 
security, a place where you ought to feel very secure. There are walls, parameters that are built around it that make a man and a woman feel secure in their love for one another. When a woman feels secure by her husband's love, then the, the submission issue is a non-issue because she knows she's, that he is submitted to the Lord. Great place to rest. Now, there is a trend today. Fewer and fewer young people, and I should say younger people because some of them aren't so young anymore, are refusing to get married. They're growing older and older, and they're so cautious that they just do not get married. They're afraid of it. They're afraid that they're going to ruin a good thing. They don't want to ruin it by getting married. And because we don't understand that it's, it's not ruinous, it's a place of security. That's what God intended it to become. And if the principles are there and intact and operational, it is secure. I mentioned Sunday and Saturday night that my wife and I have been married 20 years. i got to say, it's a whole lot better now. Not that we had any problems, major, we never like had fistfights or anything like that. But it just gets better because of that security. There was a little girl who heard the story of Snow White for the very first time. She was captivated by it, excited by it. She went home to tell her mother the story of Snow White. Now, Mom knew all about the story. She grew up with it. But her little daughter came home and retold the story of this Snow White, and Prince Charming came in and, and kissed her back to, to life. And then she said, and Mom, you know what happened next? And Mom said, of course I know. They lived happily ever after. And she said, no, they got married. <laughs> oh, what a sad mindset. Now, Boaz, whose young woman you were with, is he not our relative? You know, I think Naomi's been scoping out Boaz a little bit. You know, Ruth has been coming home every afternoon uh, with grain and, and know that he's been treating her very special and no doubt he's very impressed with her and she's just kind of noticed that. That's why she plans it this way. Now, you know, I said it before, I, I want to note it again, that Naomi is not a selfish mother-in-law. She easily could have laid a guilt trip on Ruth and said, Ruth, don't even bother marrying anybody. Just stay single because, you know, you married my son. You'll never find anyone that can come close to him, okay? Or she could have said, hey, what about me? You know, I'm single. I don't have a husband. My husband died too. It's not fair that you should find a husband. And sometimes people in relationships are jealous of another's friendship with somebody else. They try to guard it and keep it close selfishly for themselves, but not this gal. Because love seeks to give, not to get. It's more blessed to give, the Lord Jesus said, than to receive. Now, Boaz, whose young woman you were with, is he not a relative? In fact, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Naomi has interpreted Boaz's kindness toward Ruth as a sign that he is favorable toward her, interested in her. And so, have I got a plan for you? The threshing floor tonight. Now, this is how threshing worked. Um, in the months, mid-April to mid-June, probably that's when this is taking place for this barley harvest. 
they would go to a threshing floor, which is on top of the hill, generally. And the uh, afternoon Mediterranean breezes kick in in the afternoon. And they, they can be quite strong. And usually the threshing floor is made out of solid bedrock. And if you've been to Israel, you know that's not hard to find. It's everywhere. And so they go to the top of the hill where there's bedrock. They sweep it clean. Then they take a winnowing fan, it's called. Remember when John the Baptist said about Jesus, his winnowing fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly purge the threshing floor. He was speaking of the winnow. You take a, a pile of this grain with the chaff, take your five-pronged winnowing fan, throw it up in the air, the wind that comes off the Mediterranean blows the lighter chaff away, and the grain falls down. Threshing floors were on the top of hills. Wine presses were at the bottom of the hills. Why? Because the water source was there, and it's a lot easier to lug grapes down than up. Which is interesting. Just as an aside, you will remember back in Judges chapter 6, a guy by the name of Gideon, who was threshing where? In the wine press. Not on top of the hill, on the bottom of the hill. Why? Because he was scared to death of the Midianites. He was chicken. Now, it's very frustrating to try to winnow grain of any kind down in the wine press because there's no wind. So you throw it up in the air and it lands on your head, your, down your neck, in your shirt. You get very frustrated. But he's doing it because he is scared to death that the Midianites will see the food stuff. They're marauders anyway and steal it burn it, or more than that, kill him. And it's classic because an angel comes to him, an angel with a sense of humor comes to him, and says, Gideon, you mighty man of valor. And I'm sure I just got a picture of Gideon going, you talking to me? I'm a coward. You know, he's like the lion in the Wizard of Oz. Talked big, but when he came to it, he was down, down in the valley threshing. So they would winnow it in the afternoon. Then they would put it in a sieve and rock it back and forth. And the grain that was smaller would go through the sieve, and the, the bigger debris chunks would stay behind, and they would toss it. It says, verse 3, Therefore, wash yourself. Take a bath. Anoint yourself. Put on the best perfume. And put on your best garments that party dress that you've been saving. And go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Naomi is very practical. Now you might read this and say, well, this isn't very spiritual. What she's saying, I'll tell you what she's saying. Ruth, honey, look like a knockout. Put on the dress so you look so great in it and put on that best perfume and go down and then at the right time, don't, not too soon, then pop the question. Don't reveal yourself too soon. Um, some people in, some Christians, in certain denominations even, make it a denominational rule that it is somehow unspiritual to try to look beautiful. You shouldn't wear makeup. They say. Not I say. They say. You shouldn't do your hair nice. You shouldn't wear any kind of jewelry. And it's because they take a scripture out of Peter very out of context. 
They say it's not spiritual to, to look beautiful. Not according to this gal. She says, look beautiful. It's, it's, it's appropriate. In Israel today, and it's been that way f- for ages, every Friday afternoon when Sabbath begins, Friday evening, Shabbat, the men dress up, the women dress up for their husbands and wives, for their family. They're saying, this is a special night. This is a family night. I want to look good for you, babe. They put on the best dress, nice perfume, just like this. And they look great. It's unfortunate in marriages, I'm giving marriage counsel here sort of en masse, that um, for some, once they say, I do, immediately they act like, I won't. I don't. You won't. And, you know, the whole thing just goes to pot. Instead of trying to keep up that winning the attention of one's mate, doing it for them, making themselves beautiful. You may have heard about the guy who fell in love with the opera singer. And, uh, well, you know, he, he didn't really know her that well. He just had seen her through his binoculars at the theater from the third balcony. But what a voice she had. And he was certain that if he could just marry that voice, that he would live happily ever after. And, uh, you know, he didn't care that she was considerably older than he was and walked with a limp. You know, that, that voice was just enough to carry them through thick and thin. So it was a very quick romance, dating, marriage ceremony, and they were off together on their honeymoon. Well, their first night together, he was in absolute shock. His chin dropped to his chest as she pulled out her glass eye and put it in a container on the nightstand, took off the wig, put off the false eyelashes, uh, unstrapped the artificial leg, took out the dentures and, and the glasses that had the hearing aid hidden in it. And in, in absolute shock, he said, good gracious woman, sing, sing, sing. You see, he thought it didn't matter. I think I better move on quickly, though. I'm treading on thin ice, perhaps. Verse 5. The matchmaker speaks. Now Ruth says, she said to her, All that you say to me, I will do. That's an amazing verse. That's a verse of submission. It's a verse of, I respect your authority. I made a commitment to you some time back. I said, where you go, I will go. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. Hey, this is the custom. I'll do it. How many today, when mom-in-law speaks, would instead say, forget you, rather than, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. Now Ruth is probably excited about this, but at the same time it's scary. You're being very vulnerable to go up to a threshing floor. You're a Moabitess. You're following the law of the people that you have grafted yourself into. Nonetheless, you're going to have to go up to this guy, uncover his feet, you know, and what if he has smelly feet? I don't know what she's thinking. But it'd be very difficult. Then propose to him. That's what she's going to do. Propose to him. It's difficult. 
It was very difficult the night that Lenya proposed to me. No, I'm just kidding. She didn't propose to me. I proposed to her, but it was very difficult for me. I can imagine how hard it would be here. Verse 7. And after Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was cheerful, had a great feast, a great meal, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, and she came softly. Or other translations say, quietly. She tiptoed, uncovered his feet, and lay down. His heart was cheerful. He was content. The Hebrew word indicates a sense of well-being. That's all it is, well-being. He had a great feast. It's been a great harvest. There were years of famine that preceded this. The famine is over. The blessing is great. He's got it made. He enjoys the feast. It was very common at the harvest to bring the families in of those who had threshed, those who had worked in the fields, and have this festival, a feast as unto the Lord, thanking him. And then... When the night was done, all of the men would lay down around the pile of grain, their heads to the grain, their feet sticking out so it looked like a big wheel with spokes. And that was to protect the grain from thieves, marauders. And there they would rest for the evening. It says she uncovered his feet. Now, the men wore a cloak. Uh, this last time when we were uh, in Israel, we went to this place called Nazareth Village, which is a new site that opened up. They did a great job uh, taking the customs of the ancient times. They researched it well, and they built buildings and wove by hand clothing that was indicative of the first century style. So that when you walk into this place, it's like you're going back into what it actually looked like at the time of Jesus in Nazareth. The way people dressed, how they worked, how they lived in the homes, etc. Fascinating. And so I went in to examine some of the clothing of the men that they had researched from uh, the documents that they had in archaeology, etc., and writings to, to, to uh, look at the man's clothing, which is a, a common tunic, a sash or a belt that went around to tie it together, and then a cloak that he wore around his neck and over his head to keep away the sun or the cold. He slept with the cloak at night. And so he covered his feet to keep off the chill. You uncover the feet... Eventually, he's going to wake up because the temperature drops, much like it does here in this town. It drops at night, and you wake up because you have cold feet, and you want to cover them back up. That's, that's how she proposes to him. Now, it would help to understand something. What is called the leveret marriage? It's out of Deuteronomy chapter 25. It's part of the law that was given about a very... Uh, perhaps unusual situation that is going to sound strange, but a leveret marriage is between the widow of a husband who provided no sons, no offspring to carry on the family name. A marriage between the widow and the deceased man's brother. Let me read it to you. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5 and 6, and then on down to verse 10. If two brothers are living together on the same property... And one of them dies without a son. His widow must not marry outside the family. Instead, her husband's brother must marry her and fulfill the duties of a brother-in-law. The first son she bears to him will be counted as the son of the dead brother, so that his name will not be forgotten in Israel. But if the dead man's brother refuses to marry the widow, she must go 
to the town gate and say to the leaders there, My husband's brother refuses to preserve his brother's name in Israel. He refuses to marry me. The leaders of the town will then summon him and try to reason with him. If he still insists that he doesn't want to marry her, the widow must walk over to him in the presence of the leaders, pull his sandal from his foot, and spit in his face. It's in the Bible. She will then say, This is what happens to a man who refuses to raise up a son for his brother. Even afterward, his family will be referred to as the family of the one whose sandal was pulled off. Hey, I know who you are. You're the family of the guy whose sandal was pulled off. That was the name they gave him. Now, why was this done? It sounds odd. It sounds weird. It sounds freaky. We're glad we don't live back then when we read this. So why was it done? Well, let me give you a few reasons. Number one, this would tie families very close together. Can you see why? If your brother Jacob is getting married and you happen to be his brother, you are suddenly very interested in who he's dating. You want to make sure she's the right gal because she just might be your gal as well. Families are very close over these things. It's not like, oh, hey, you make up your own mind, dude, whatever you're into. Oh, no. Let's talk this thing through. So it kept families very close together. Second, it protected women. If they had property, if they had sheep, they had goats, they had cisterns and grapes, and suddenly she's left with this business. It's a lot to manage. God was protecting the women. Third, it protected the property, the land, for the family and the tribe and the nation. You see, God gave that plot of land, what some call Palestine, what we call Israel, to the children of Israel. Cross the Jordan River, it's yours by tribal allotment. But if a husband dies or the land is forfeited, because of poverty, which is what happened to Naomi and Elimelech when they left. Then you won't get it back to the year of Jubilee. Every 50 years they blow the trumpet, reverts back to its original owners. That was the provision of the law. However, if the guy dies and the widow is left and she marries some foreigner or some guy who really wants to rip her off, the property goes into his hands. And that family, that tribe, and even a part then of that nation loses its inheritance. So to preserve that family, that tribe, and the nation from keeping its land allotment, you just couldn't go out and marry anybody. You couldn't marry somebody outside that family. You couldn't go marry a foreigner. You marry somebody in the family and you raise up seed to the dead brothers so that that not only nation, not only tribe, but family maintains its land for future generations. And an inheritance is kept for years to come. Now it happened at midnight. Ooh, it's getting better all the time. That the man was startled. He turned himself. You know, we don't know why he was startled. Could have had a bad pizza dream or something. He just woke up or his feet were cold. And there a woman was lying at his feet. Now it's dark. He, he can't turn on a light. It's a few thousand years ago. He just knows something's going on. And he said, Who are you? So she answered, I am Ruth, 
your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, literally spread your skirt or garment over me. Here it says, take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. Hebrew word again, goel, kinsman, redeemer, a relative that can redeem us, the property, the land. She's proposing to him, who are you? I'm Ruth. Spread your, spread your wing over me. Keep me under the shadow of your wing. Protect me. It's like a Sadie Hawkins thing, you know. She's doing the advancing. She's inviting him to the marriage. And she's asking for lifelong protection. Now, the metaphor of spread your garment or put me under your wing is something that is used of God. I'll remind you of it. It's in Ezekiel. Listen to it. Ezekiel 16. The Lord says, When I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed your time was the time of love, so I spread my wing over you and I covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you and you became mine, says the Lord. So she's saying, Be my husband. You are a goel, a kinsman redeemer. You are related to my husband. Then he said, Blessed are you of the Lord. That's a, that's a good response. He could have been shocked. What? Are you kidding? No way, Jose. So, blessed are you of the Lord. That's good. Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter. For you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning in that you did not go after young men, whether poor or rich. Let me translate the ancient Hebrew into modern English. He said, wow, that's cool. You've acted better at the end than the beginning. It's obvious you haven't been here just husband hunting. You're acting according to Deuteronomy law, the lever at marriage, Deuteronomy 25. That's why he says this to her. It's beautiful that, and he notices it, she has taken a quiet and retired approach. She's not upfront about it. She waits till they're sleeping, then she just kind of uncovers his feet, then falls asleep, one eye open. (laughs) Then he wakes up, then she springs it on him. She could have taken him to court. That's what the law said. She was to go to the elders of the city, the gate of the city where the elders would convene, And she could claim out loud in the presence of witnesses, I will take him, I claim him as my goel, my kinsman redeemer. She didn't do that. She just sort of kicks back, lets the Lord work, comes to the threshing floor at night, obeys mom-in-law, uncovers the feet, sees what he says, says, you and me, babe. He goes right on. (laughs) Now notice... He says, my daughter, he says that in verse 10, verse 11. Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter. In verse 11, now my daughter. You know why? Because he is probably between 45 and 55 years of age. He's, he's a contemporary of Elimelech and Naomi. That's why he says, you could have gone after younger men. You didn't. You're following the law. He's single, obviously. He hasn't married or his wife passed away, but he's available. And now my daughter... Do not fear. Now, this is where he kind of acts macho. Don't worry about it, honey. I will do for you all that you request, the John Wayne approach. For all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous 
woman, a woman of valor. Same wording as Proverbs 31. Who can find a virtuous woman? Her, her worth is far above rubies. Proverbs 31, the virtuous woman. Everybody in town knows that you are a virtuous woman. By the way, here's, here's a piece of trivia, trivia for you. you. You Bible fanatics, you know all, all about Proverbs 31. This is old history to you. According to Jewish tradition, you know, Proverbs 31 opens up and says, the words of King Lemuel spoken by his mother. According to Jewish tradition, King Lemuel was a synonym, another name, a doing business as Solomon. It was another name for Solomon. And that King Lemuel's mother was Bathsheba, who according to Jewish tradition was orally telling the family history of that spotless character named Ruth to Solomon. Here is a virtuous woman. And as you read the description and think of her out in the fields and what she did, it's very compatible. Verse 12, now it is true that I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Now, I don't want to bog you down with, with um, some of the law and the commentaries, but the 11th century Jewish rabbi and commentator named Rashi states that it has to be the firstborn brother that has the right first. He's the closest goel. And then you step on down if there are no, no brothers, then cousins. So this could be an older brother of, of even Boaz. And if he's 45, 55, ew, but... You know, it's like, okay. And she's this young woman, and, well, there's somebody closer, or a cousin. Which is interesting, because if there's somebody closer, Naomi would have known. If it's in the family, she knows her own family. Why didn't she send her, Ruth, to the closer one? We don't know why. You could say, well, he was unqualified, but, but obviously he is qualified as you read the next chapter. He just didn't want to do it. And even the end of this chapter, Boaz says, if he doesn't want to do it, not he can't do it, but if he didn't want to do it. It could simply be, she favored Boaz. She liked Boaz. This guy's great. He's a relative. Let's start here. At least he'll broker the deal. We'll put him sort of on the spot and see what he does with it. She already knew that Boaz took a liking to her. And uh, it's interesting that, that he knew this immediately. He didn't say, well, no, wait a minute. I think no. he knew exactly that there was somebody closer who had the right of redemption. And it, it, it almost sounds like, I don't want to read too much into it, it almost sounds like he had investigated it. He was ready for this. He wanted this. All he was waiting for is the green light. And so she goes, you know, I'd like your protection. Well, you know, there is a guy. And, uh, but if you didn't take it, don't worry about it. It's like he was ready for it, ready to move. Verse 13, stay the night or stay this night. And in the morning it shall be that if he will not perform the duty of a close relative for you, good. Let him do it. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you as the Lord lives. That's a solemn oath invoking the name of Yahweh. Lie down until morning. Something struck me as I read the book of Ruth. The form of communication. We read it and we go, what, what does that mean when he un she uncovers his feet and says, uh, keep me under the shadow of your wing? We, we look at that and go, that's kind of fuzzy. You know, we, 
are used to just saying, would you marry me? But he obviously understood exactly in ancient Near East metaphor what he was asking. He understood exactly and she understood exactly. And what's, what, what stuck out to me as I read, the, and I've read through this book several times now, just lately, just to get a, a flavor of it, is that the communication was so good between people that love, people that love. The communication between Ruth and Boaz was good. They understood perfectly. They were on the same page. They tracked. Between Naomi and Ruth, the communication was great. It was good. Every afternoon when she came home off of the fields, she told her mother-in-law everything that happened. Because mother-in-law said, tell me what happened. Tell me more. And so they talked through the night. When they were back in Moab, communication was great. Naomi said to those two girls, you stay in Moab. I can't give you any more sons. I can't provide for you. Stay here with your family. I'm going back. And they talked it through. And they came to an agreement. And Ruth came and Orpah stayed. But the communication was good. Now, one of the reasons is, in those days, they were really good at communication. They didn't do anything in the evening. They didn't have television or shows. They locked into each other. They told stories. They, they went through the day. They spent so much time with each other in the enclosure, the courtyard of the house at mealtimes. But there is a principle, and I don't want to miss it. People who love each other, well, let me rephrase that. Mature love is fostered in an atmosphere of good communication. Mature love is fostered in an atmosphere of good communication. Relationships, and you know it's true, can get, well, it can get busy. Life can get busy. Other things can distract, get in the way. And that communication, the need to communicate, gets neglected, gets pushed aside. One of the major, the, one of the major problems, one of the top three major problems in a marriage, and I see it time and time again, is communication breakdown. When there's poor communication, that spark of romance leaves the marriage. Mistrust settles in. They become strangers under the same roof. And I've seen, I've seen unhappy, lonely people who sleep in the same bed under the same roof, and they're alienated, isolated. Mature love is fostered in an atmosphere of good communication. Now, he does say in verse 13, stay the night. And, and I've read, I've heard people take this to absolutely the lowest possible level. I don't know why people like to do that. But they infer, ah, oh, see, there's, he's saying, hop in bed with me, honey. Stay the night. Stay the night speaks of the passage of time in the Hebrew language, merely the passage of time. There is no indication of how the time was passed. It's a simple statement, stay where you're at until morning. It was already past midnight. He's just saying, go to sleep. You can leave in the morning. If a sexual connotation was implied, the Hebrew word sakab would have been used but the Hebrew word la'on is used instead, which simply means a passage of time, no sexual connotation implied. 
wanted to say that because some people will read stuff into it. Now that's another indication about the kind of relationship we're dealing with. It demonstrates maturity in relationship. You know, everybody's asleep. He could have said, well, don't lie at my feet, which he does say, lie at my feet. Lie at my side. Let's cuddle, baby. But it says, verse 14, she lay at his feet until morning. You know, you know what an aspect of mature love is? Restraint. You can tell if people love each other, not by just what they're willing to do, but what they're willing not to do. 1 Corinthians 13, we've already covered it. Love does not seek its own. Women, if there's a man in your life who is coming on to you with some kind of a line, like, well, baby, I love you, I love you so much, I can't wait till we get married. Know that you're dealing with a man who does not love you. Does not love you. He might say, I love you, but what he really means is, I love me and I want you. Because I love me. I want to be gratified now. I'm not willing to wait and to build the relationship. But here's an indication of a mature relationship. I received a letter from a gal who got involved with a guy. She had heard warnings like this before. But this is what she writes. Unfortunately, we gave in to our desires in the heat of passion. We knew it was wrong, but we justified it by saying that we were truly in love and one day we would be married. After all, how could the Lord condemn true love? Then she writes, we were so wrong. We damaged a beautiful thing. Restraint. Lie. Stay the night. So she lay at his feet until morning. She arose before anyone could recognize her. And then he said, Do not let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. It was early morning. It was dusk. The workers were getting up. Obviously, they saw her there. Boaz wanted to protect the integrity of this woman. He knows that Bethlehem's a small town. It's a gossip mill. People like to talk, even God's people like to talk. And um, to protect this force, she's a Moabitess, she's a slave. He just says, keep this thing under wraps. And we'll see why. He wants to take this before the elders of the city in chapter 4, he'll do that. But he, he didn't want her in the National Enquirer, so he just says, keep it quiet. That's integrity. Also, he said, bring the shawl that is on you and hold it when she held it. He measured six ephahs of barley, that's a whole bunch, and laid it on her. She went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, Is that you, my daughter? Now, that, that's a token of love, by the way. Here, here's some grain. You know, not, see you later, just have some grain. It's a token of love. <laughs> you might say, no thanks. Uh, but, but read on. She said, these six aphas of barley he gave me, for he said, do not go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. This was not duty that made Boaz do this. This was love. This was love for Ruth and for Ruth's mother-in-law. Remember what Naomi said in verse 21 of chapter 1 when they got back from Moab? 
They said, hey, it's Naomi. She's backing down. Don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. You call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Lord has dealt bitterly with me, for I went out full and I came back empty. So, these six aphas of barley he gave me, for he said, don't go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. In other words, here's a visible token of a blessing. The days of emptiness are over. If this deal goes through and we get married, I'm going to take care of your mother-in-law. The love extends to her. Beautiful token. And then she said, that's Naomi. This is how it closes. Sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out. For the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. I tell you what, Naomi felt so accepted and so loved, and then gives this advice just wait. Keith Miller, great author, said, Real love is running your finger lightly over the other person's soul until you find a crack, and then gently pouring your love into that crack. That's what he did for Naomi. Sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out, for the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. One of the hardest things in my personal life to do is to wait, to sit still. I, I'm not good at sitting still. I'm good at being active. I'm good at working. But to sit still, ask my wife. It's so tough. And it's hard, admit it, to wait even on the Lord. You want a yes from the Lord. Even a no from the Lord. Just, I want a no. But when the Lord says, not yes, not no, but wait Wait on the Lord. Oh, no, I don't want to wait on the Lord. That means I've got to trust in the Lord. Wait. It's difficult. What, is she, what she's saying is this. The work of redemption of this kinsman redeemer belongs to him alone. You can't do anything. You can't add to it. So you just rest and let this redeemer do his work. Great application, huh, to Jesus Christ. Our kinsman redeemer, who said in his high priestly prayer in John 17 to his father, I have come to do the work, your work, and to finish it. And on the cross, it is finished, Father. Into thy hands I commit my spirit. It is finished. The work of redemption is his alone. You can't add to it. You can't work for it. You have nothing of value to give for it. You sit still. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin has left its crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. It's his work. It's a finished work. Too many religious systems say, well, he died on the cross, but you've got to work hard for it. No, you receive it by faith and let God transform you. And when he transforms you and you are saved, you will work. But your motivation will be because you love him, not to, to get salvation. That's past. Charles Spurgeon wisely wrote, It is not thy hold on Christ that saves thee. It is Christ. It is not thy joy in Christ that saves thee. It is Christ. 
It is not even thy faith in Christ, though that be the instrument. It is Christ's blood and merit. You are either tonight resting in him completely or still trying to earn something. I'm going to earn my salvation. I'm going to earn favor with God. Then you don't understand God's grace. And Naomi's counsel is good counsel for us. Wait, sit still. Because the work is done. It's accomplished. You can rest. Father, the words of Hebrews comes to our mind. It speaks of rest in Christ. And just as God ceased from his own works after he created the world, that we should cease from our works. We can't, we can't earn anything, any standing with you. That's been done by our kinsman redeemer, our Goel, the one who came to identify with us as a close relative, God in human flesh, to buy us back, to establish a relationship. Lord, I pray that some of these lessons would would stick with us. We don't want information as much as we really need and want transformation, Father. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't be afraid to think, plan, strategize the future, always with flexibility saying, well, if the Lord's in it, if the Lord wills. That balance of human and divine energy. Lord, I pray that we would learn cooperation as well. Even as Ruth listened to her mom-in-law and said, everything you tell me, I'm going to do it. That we would learn that submission isn't just what our kids need to do to us, but we, what we need to do with each other. To submit to one another in the fear of God. Lord, I pray that we would also learn to rest. Do what we can, but then when that's all done, we just rest and see what you're going to do. Lord, we love being a part of your family. We love the adventure of salvation. It's a journey that unfolds daily for us. And we don't know where you're going to take us next, but we do want to say we're absolutely open. We're at your disposal. We want to be your instrument. We want you to use us this summer. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us direction. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand. 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 Amen.